When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello and welcome. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to another Headlines episode. On Headlines episodes, we take four of the most pressing, environmentally leaning news headlines, and I condense them, sweeten them up, and present them to you so that you are fully aware, fully informed as it relates to issues surrounding our planet and the environment, climate change, all of it. This is the first Headlines episode of 2024. And so if you're just joining us, welcome. I try and keep these fun. I try to keep them informative and I try to keep them short. So let's get right into it today. Let's get into the headline that made my mouth drop open. And that, of course, is the potential for all of us to soon be drinking toilet water. Yes. If you listen to this show regularly, you already know that in certain parts of the world, water is scarce. And the scarcity, that's thanks in part to climate change, and the scarcity problem when it comes to water is becoming an increasingly urgent issue. If you live in a drought or wildfire-stricken area, you know this to be true. And so governments are turning to new and unconventional, to say the least, options to ensure there is adequate amounts of water. One of these unconventional options is turning sewer waste aka toilet water, into drinking water. And if you hear me saying that and you're thinking to yourself, oh, heck no, that will never happen, hold on to your hats because California's State Water Resources Control Board just before Christmas voted to allow water companies in the state to pump treated wastewater into residents' taps in the state. So let's remind ourselves, California recently spent more than three years in a drought. They had heat waves, record wildfires. And so under these new regulations in California, any water being recycled must undergo at least three separate treatment processes, and it will be monitored and further treated for pathogens. So it's cleaned three different times, okay? But still, this may make you squeamish. In a statement, the board said that this decision is, quote, an exciting development in the state's ongoing efforts to find innovative solutions to the challenges of extreme weather driven by climate change, end quote. Now, of course, this is a new idea here in America. However, the idea of turning wastewater into drinking water, that is not a new idea. Namibia is one of the driest countries in Africa, and their capital became the first city in the world to introduce wastewater recycling over 30 years ago. Singapore, too, has installed 
an extensive filtration system that can treat just about 240 million gallons of water a day. Most of that water goes towards industrial operations and cooling systems, but some of it is mixed into the city-state's drinking water. So it's coming to America, and it's not just coming to California. Colorado also introduced guidelines for the use of wastewater for drinking earlier this year. We're moving on. We're going to talk about flowers, and we're going to talk about pollinators, and we're going to talk about plant sex. Surprise to no one, the pollinators are in trouble. And so every spring, flowers mate with the help of the pollinators. Flowers lure the pollinators, the big, beautiful blooms that we all love, right? The flashy colors and the nectar bring the pollinators in. And then the animals with the pollen all over them travel from flower to flower, taking the pollen with them, of course, and then they subsequently are fertilizing the seeds of other plants. But we humans, right, we have an affinity towards pesticides. We want our green lawns. We also are destroying pollinator habitats through so many different ways. So what does this mean? What does the decline in pollinators mean for plants who require, demand pollinators to reproduce? Well, again, this new study coming out of France, they studied field pansies, and they found that the field pansy is adapting by fertilizing their own seeds. Now, even more surprising is this evolution happened in just 20 generations. So ecologists from this study consider this a rapid evolution. Now, selfing is when you use your own pollen to fertilize your own seeds. Selfing is, of course, more convenient since a flower does not have to wait for a pollinator to come on by. And this sounds like good news, right? Selfing among field pansies, according to this study, has increased 27% since the 1990s. It sounds great, doesn't it? Flowering plants may be evolving at a pace rapid enough to adapt to the effects of climate change. Great. Well, no, not so fast. It's not good news in the long run. There's a major drawback to selfing, and that is the fact that a selfing flower can only use its own genes to produce new seeds, which means that they're less prepared to fight diseases and droughts and other challenges that future generations of the plant may face. We like diversity in our DNA. The researchers of this study compared the anatomy of the plants, and although the new field pansies had not changed in overall size, guess what changed? The size of their flowers shrunk by about 10%, and the plants produced about 20% less nectar. So what does this mean? It means that instead of investing energy to make those big, beautiful blooms and create the nectar to lure in the pollinators, these plants are finding more success by directing their energy towards growth and resisting disease. So if there's 20% less nectar, that means perhaps that the pollinators will be going hungry. And that's because there's no reason to think that other plants have not also similarly evolved to create smaller flowers and less nectar. And if that's true, then the pollinators and the flowering plants may be locked in what scientists call a downward spiral because less nectar will drive down populations of 
the pollinators even more. Some plants may give up on sexual reproduction altogether, and if so, it's unlikely they will be able to regain that ability again. And so long-term, there will be, the, of course, those genetic limitations due to selfing, which will put plants also, in addition to the pollinators, at risk of extinction. We're going to do one more story before our break, and it is all about climate trauma. You've probably heard of eco-anxiety before, also known as climate anxiety. It's that existential dread. Well, you've, so you've heard of eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. Now we are adding a new climate change-related phrase to our climate change dictionary as we discuss mental health, and that, of course, is climate Trauma. So to describe climate trauma, I want to first take you again back to California and talk about the Camp Fire. The Camp Fire happened in 2018. It was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history. It was also the most expensive natural disaster in the world in the year 2018. The Camp Fire killed 85 civilians. One person's still missing as of today. The fire also injured 12 civilians and five firefighters. The fire destroyed more than 18,000 structures. And a study, no, this is not a recent study, but a study released earlier this year by scientists at the University of California, San Diego, found that an overwhelming number of campfire survivors were suffering from various mental health disorders, most prominently of course, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. The senior author of this study said that the amount of PTSD they saw in individuals was striking and very significant because the amount of PTSD they found was on par with what they would have expected to see in war veterans. And so this study highlights that climate change is a significant mental health stressor, and that is a big problem, and you already know why. It's compounded by the fact that America's mental health care system is not built to handle a world in which entire populations are routinely and consistently traumatized or living in a state of anxiety. A leading expert on climate change adaptation says that our mental health system as a whole is at least 20 years behind where it needs to be to meet the need. Now, there are two groups in the United States dedicated to this very specific issue. One is the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. The other is the Climate Psychology Alliance of North America. And earlier this year, these groups developed a climate-aware therapist directory. The network is made up of 97 psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, and social workers. These 97 professionals are located across the country. And just to put that number in perspective, so 97 professionals, mental health professionals for the whole country, there are roughly 150,000 just psychologists and just psychiatrists in the United States. So only 97 are climate aware. I say this, but I also understand bone deep that the problem is not just finding a climate aware therapist. The problem is finding any therapist. And if you've ever sought out therapy, you may have learned unfortunately learned, that there are very few counselors, social workers, psychologists, and psychiatrists to fill the oversized collective need. 
There's also the fact that climate trauma is not an officially recognized mental disorder. Another way of saying this is climate trauma is not listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders Version 5, the DSM-5. It's not in there. So treatment for it likely is not going to be covered by insurance. Now, there is a push among members of that Climate Psychiatry Alliance to get the American Psychiatric Association to get some climate trauma language into the DSM. But of course, like anything, there's red tape. The process is slow, and that's because there's a very convoluted and complex process that the APA, the American Psychological Association, has to go through before making changes to the DSM. And so my final word here before we take our break is that climate disasters will strain our already super strained mental health system. It's time for the system to adapt and get with it. So we're going to take our ad break. And when we come back, I have a story for you. It's about Cancer Alley, and it is a textbook case of environmental racism. I'll see you in a minute. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high-quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game-changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. And we're back. Before the break, we discussed drinking wastewater. We discussed the evolution of plants to fertilize themselves. And we discussed climate trauma. Now we are on to our feature story today, which is, again, a textbook case of environmental racism happening in real time. I'm taking you now to Cancer Alley. Yes, that's right. There's a place in America called Cancer Alley. It is an 85-mile stretch along the Mississippi River 
Between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, it is home to dozens of chemical plants and nearly 50 refineries. In the 1930s, when surveyors were hired by the government to rank the desirability of neighborhoods for investment purposes, these surveyors assigned the lowest letter grades to Black and immigrant areas. Apparently, Black and immigrant areas were considered undesirable by these surveyors. Many of these areas that got these low grades that yes, they're homes to Black and immigrant communities, but they are also home to highways and rail yards and heavy industry. When it came time to build these chemical plants and refineries, they, of course, got built in areas with the lowest letter grades from the 1930s, aka in neighborhoods with predominantly Black and Latino citizens. And so this is precisely why much of Cancer Alley sits next to, again, predominantly Black and Latino neighborhoods. This, my friends, is a story about environmental racism. And that's because Cancer Alley, you can probably guess from the name, but Cancer Alley has been known for decades to emit high levels of benzene. Benzene is that gas that is linked to leukemia. And the environmental racism piece comes in because, yes, Cancer Alley sits amidst Black and Latino communities and Despite knowing about the leukemia problem for decades, as of 2023-2024, our federal government is not doing much of anything to fix it. Now, one of President Biden's campaign promises was to protect these Gulf Coast communities in Mississippi and Louisiana and in parts of Texas from dangerous pollution and toxic air. That was a campaign promise. Well, guess what, my friends? We have one year left until the election, and not much has been done. The Washington Post did report earlier this week that the EPA, our Environmental Protection Agency, has only recently begun to do something about air pollution in the region. Yes, I will give credit here where credit is due. The number of refineries and chemical plants emitting high levels of benzene has fallen slightly since Biden took office. But as of this summer, data shows that eight facilities in the region continued to release excessive amounts of benzene, which, by the way, is that sweet-smelling gas and is one of the most dangerous pollutants that these industries emit. The EPA is now getting its act together and stepping up enforcement in the Cancer Alley area. But why now? The reason why now and not years ago, not decades ago, is because the inspector general opened an investigation into a lack of anything happening. Now, you may be wondering, well, what does the EPA have to say about their inaction? EPA officials do say they're working to hold polluters accountable. They blame the delays on more than a decade of budget cuts to the agency. Uh, the budget cuts have cost the agency 30% of its enforcement and compliance staff. The EPA also provided data showing that their regional office in Texas did conduct 740 inspections across five states this year, the majority of those inspections being in disadvantaged communities. But the question still remains, where is cleaning up Cancer Alley on the EPA's list of priorities? It's certainly not at the top of that list of priorities, 
And I find myself wondering why. In this article written by the Washington Post, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's quite an interesting read. Uh, One community member was quoted by saying, essentially, if you can't trust the federal government, if you can't trust the EPA to come in and fix this big problem, who will? This is air, right? You can't just stop breathing. And so I wanted to highlight this story today because it brings to light a sad reality that I, for one, frankly, fail to mention enough. And that is that, yes, while climate change and pollution and other environmental issues affect every single person on this planet, it's the disadvantaged communities and it's the marginalized people that will always be affected to a greater degree. I have done an episode entirely dedicated to environmental racism before. In my humble opinion, it is a must-listen for anybody who needs some historical context to the environmental racism problem, and it's a big problem. I'll link to that as well in the show notes. There was very little good news today, if any, and I'm so sorry about that, but don't worry. We'll be back on Tuesday. I've got an interview with you. We are discussing some good news. The governor of New York just signed into law the Digital Fair Repair Act, which is a big win for right to repair activists everywhere. It's a big win for New Yorkers, and it's a big win for us non-New Yorkers. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty behind New York's new Digital Fair Repair Act. That's on Tuesday. I'll see you then. Have an amazing weekend. I'm sorry I went over time. Take care.